We're going to be uh, finishing up our sermon series on origins, looking at the first three chapters of the book of Genesis. And we're kind of in the final chapter, chapter three, uh, and we're finishing off this morning. So it's been really great as we've gone through to look at different themes and topics and see how they find their origin in these chapters, in these important verses. And uh, as we've been going through, uh, we've seen different themes, different ideas uh, that, that start off kind of in embryo, in origin form in Genesis 1 to 3. And we focused in on themes of creation, themes of humanity, or kind of responsibility or stewardship. And we looked um, as well as, as kind of our, our birthright, our heritage to, to live with God in his presence. And then last week, uh, we looked at the origin of sin and how kind of all of the promise of what happens in chapters one and two is, is scuppered, it's, it's ruined, it's, it, it's tainted by the fall and the decision by Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I talked about how last week that this was um, not kind of like an irrelevant act, but rather was, thanks, Verity, was rather uh, kind of exposes or reveals the heart of all of us to want to make our own decisions and want to decide right from wrong on our own terms. That's what it meant for them to take the apple, or I guess fruit, I don't know, we always think of it as an apple. It's hard not to think of it as an apple. I'm trying to think of it as like a, I don't know, a pineapple. Uh, whatever they ate, what it meant was God, you've said that you know, we're to live with you in this way and you're going to teach us and disciple us and take us on the journey of understanding right from wrong. That knowledge wasn't off limits. It just had guardrails. It just had like, there was a barrier on either side. There was a way in which God was saying, you need this knowledge, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to lead you through it. But Adam and Eve were like, no thanks. We'll do it our own way. And this morning, what we're going to do is look at the, the, the third person, really, in that, in that kind of conversation, or the fourth person, the snake, and see what his role in all of this was. And then we're going to finish with kind of the hope of the whole uh, three chapters, really, the hope of, of a savior. And we're going to look at kind of first where Jesus fits into all of this, because as Christians, we believe that the, the Old and the New Testament tell one story, a story of a coming king, the story of the Messiah, the story of one who's going to come and make it right. And that person is Jesus. And Jesus says of himself that... Um, of himself that if you look back through the scriptures, you can find me there. And so we're going to have a little look and we're going to land in, uh, in this beautiful hope. It's the first gospel promise in scripture. Oh, sorry, guys. I've finger slipped there. Oh, there's a warning, an important warning. My, so so um, I got some messages through from my family yesterday. And my niece, Willow, it's a beautiful picture, really lovely. She's such a smiley girl, but there was a lizard on her head. And she's at one of these parties where they like bring the animals and show them around. And I was like, whoa, there's a lizard. Uh, and, then, and then my sister wrote, oh, um, uh, if you, you know, there was also some snake, but she, she like just wrote the first letter and the last letter as though it was like a swear word like with still stars in the middle. And I'm like, what's going on? So I messaged her and I was like, I want to see those pictures. And she's like, oh yeah, your uncle Ian is terrified. Absolutely terrified, even the word. And so I, I wanted to say, and because I grew up with a phobia of dogs, if you have an aversion to snakes, there's a snake picture in here. 
So there's a warning. So you can look away when it comes. I don't want anyone to be like triggered. And I'm just saying, I, I, my uncle Ian, bless him. Um, so that's, that's what that's there for. <laughs> Um, great. So this morning, um, we're going we're gonna to talk about snakes as well. So if that's already put you on edge, I apologize. Um, I mean, they give me the heebie-jeebies too. It's just like, whoa. Uh, but anyway, the snake and the savior, that's the title of our message this morning. So we're going to read the first seven-ish verses of Genesis chapter 3 to refresh ourselves in the conversation that this snake has with, with uh, Eve. And then we're going to dig straight into these characters. So... You know we're on 9% here, Verity? Okay. Uh, let's see if we make it. Uh, Genesis, uh, and here we are with the first sort of seven verses. I actually didn't put it on here. Hang on, I'll read it here if that's okay. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly, you will certainly not die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and was also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And so last week, we uh, looked at how this decision uh, by Eve and Adam, notice that he's there the whole time. He's not absent. He's there. Um, he just doesn't stand up. He just doesn't speak up. And what's crazy is that he's the one that was given the command in the first place not to eat from the tree. So he's like doubly responsible for not saying something um, and, and just allowing this conversation to go ahead. Um, but also, it implies that he was, he was, he was involved. He was for it. He was, he was happy for it to go ahead, the way that things were going. And so... Um, before we, we think that this is um, kind of looking at Eve in a negative light, Adam comes across uh, kind of worse, actually, when you see the bigger picture that's going on. And then it makes sense then, of course, of, of what uh, God later says as he talks to Adam and Eve uh, about the impact of this. But we did focus on this last week, that what they're, they're doing is an act of rebellion, it's a way of saying, God, not your will, but mine. I'm going to do things my own way. I'm going to make the decisions. But the snake, who is he first? And, uh, and, and what, what is he? I think that's um, the first thing we need to establish. So first thing I want to say is that the snake is clearly a created thing. That we get that from the first line, don't we, of chapter 3. Uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And um, the, it's interesting because later on, um, in the next chapter, chapter 4, Cain is given this warning about sin crouching at the door, creeping at the door, kind of being this crawling, creeping, cr crouching creature. 
It's a lot of sounds. Um, and that's what sin is. And, and here we see this same descriptive word used. And it's the, it's the word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 to describe kind of a category of created things that happens on day 6. So on day 6, God creates the animals and he creates wild ones, domesticated ones, so your cows, your sheep, your pigs, and then crawling ones, the creepy crawlies, as I call them. And that included snakes. These days, creepy crawlies is usually smaller. We've got different categories. We call snakes reptiles, but they didn't have that category back then. So they were just all creepy crawlies, and that's what the snake is, um, a created thing. That's clear from the text. That's important, because sometimes uh, we can be a bit too quick to just assume that and to think that this is just this spiritual entity, um, but it is a created thing. In other words, there's God, the creator, and then all of creation is under him. So we don't give anything that's a created thing the same kind of um, uh, authority or power or, or even consideration that we would give to God. He's holy. He's outside of, of creation. And this snake is just a created thing like all the rest. I think that's helpful as we uh, anchor ourselves in who and what this snake is. Um, and next slide is, is a snake. I hope you're okay with that. Um, and, and an alma. So I, I, we, my favorite place in University is the snake exhibition in, uh, in University. If you've been there, you, it's up by the fish. If you go to University and you go up to the fish part, and then there's a little room, it's a reptile room, and there's this amazing blue snake. And um, this is a snapshot from a film where she's completely oblivious to the fact that this snake is just inches away from her face, coiled and ready to go. Chloe's terror. She's like, oh. Um, but there's a pane of glass in the way, of course, so she's totally safe. Um, but snakes, right? They're, this is an important aspect, thing to, to get to grips with. They represent a hidden and unseen danger. They're low to the ground, they're often in holes. In that uh, culture, climate, geographical location that the scripture's being written in and to the people it's being written to, it's Snakes represent a real present, like hidden danger, death, certain death, and certainly huge pain. Like, they, obviously, you don't have the anti venoms that we have today, and wounds get infected. It, it's serious, they're serious. And so, I think the image of a snake is helpful to try and illustrate metaphorically the kind of danger that Adam and Eve are in. That's the point of using a snake in the metaphor. And, and I'm not saying that it's purely metaphorical. It, it can be literal and be figurative at the same time. It can have a, a, a kind of a, a represent, it can be a, a literal snake in a garden talking inexplicably and kind of amazingly in this uh, divine story. And it can also have a deeper significance and meaning and metaphor, which I think is what's going on here. We're supposed to go, ah, snakes are dangerous. They come hidden in the grass. You can't see them before they've bit you. And if you know, if you go to university and you put your hand in the machine, there's a machine there and you have to put your hand on and there's this like dancing cobra and you have to move, it, it like goes to bite you and you have to move, it's just a video, and you have to move your hand out the way before it bites you and it's like, can you like that? And I've never been, I've, so many times I've been there and never once has anyone ever moved their hand out of the way quick enough. You always get bit. Terrifying. <laughs> you always get bit. But the snake is clearly a spiritual being as well. Perhaps because it's talking, that's an indication. Um, also, the way that God goes on to speak to the snake. 
as well, and I've got a verse up there from Revelation 20, where John, the apostle, is writing at kind of the very end of the biblical canon is being written, and he's writing this bizarre and crazy and wonderful apocryphal letter, Revelation, um, and in it, he, he, he makes this connection between this ancient serpent and the devil, the, the Satan. What does he say? And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And what John's doing is making the connection, as though it's not really obvious, that that snake way back in the garden was just the devil in disguise, or it was empowered by and motivated and, and kind of like, uh, like puppeted by the, the devil. And, and this word, by the way, uh, the devil or, or the Satan, they're not names. They're not given names like Gary or Susan. They're, it's, that's descriptions of his character. It means the accuser or the adversary, the opponent, the one who is against. That's what it means. He's never actually given a name. Even Lucifer isn't his name. It's the Latin word for Venus, and it means morning star. It's a really If you want to know more about it, I could honestly... 20 minutes tell you all about it. It's fascinating, but it's not his name. It's not his name. It doesn't have one. It's just an enemy. It's just an adversary. And I think that's, again, important because God has a name. Jesus has a name. We can call on the name of the Lord, but our enemy doesn't have a name. Has a character, though. So he's a created being. He's a spiritual being as well. He's, he's, he's related. We get, you get hints and, and um, there's other places like in Isaiah uh, where there's a little bit more description and there's some understanding of kind of the story, the back, the back story, as it were, of this character, the snake. But, um, you know, it's, 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 go, it's going deep. And uh, it, really, the important things to understand here is that he's on a mission and he's against humanity. He's against God's plan for this world. He's, he's, he's put himself in opposition to God's plans and God's purposes. And especially in the way that they uh, involve you and I, God's children, who if you remember in creation, God creates everything. And then it's this special act, way after the creepy crawly things, and this special act, he creates humanity and says, let us create mankind in our image. We're created in the image of God in a way that nothing else is. And he, he hates that. He hates that. And like a jealous and spiteful creature filled with hate, he's doing everything he can to get you and I not to live the way we were created to live. Not to live as image bearers of God. I talked last week about how sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark of our calling to be God's image bearers in this world and to live and to rule with his authority and that where we put our, our hands to work, blessing and fruitfulness should come out. And as we go about this world, we bring goodness and peace and love and, and God's glory to the world. That's our job. That's our privilege. And God's all about helping us do that. And the snake is all about turning us away from that. And that's what we see, isn't it, in the story here. As he as he, as he communicates with Eve, what he wants to do and, and the way he works is he, he, he's like putting his foot down on, a, on, on like the lever of our soul. That's the image I was trying to think of. And in the middle of it all is, 
uh, is, the, is like our desires. And our desires are good things, or nearly always. We've got desires in our hearts for simple stuff like food and shelter and like safety. And then it gets more complex with desires for kind of acceptance, desires for intimacy, desires for kind of notoriety, desires to be liked. We've got all of these things going on in us, and, and these can be used to serve us and to bring us joy and to bring goodness and peace and glory to this world, but they can also be used in other ways. And that's exactly what our enemy is doing, is trying to kind of tip the balance in favor of feeding our desires in unhealthy ways that damage ourselves and damage others. It's what the Bible calls sin. And it's what he does, isn't it? He says to, to Eve, oh, there's that delicious fruit. Why don't you eat it? You're hungry, aren't you? Go for it. Hey, and don't you know, like, you know, there's loads of fruit. Is, why can't you eat from these apples? Why can't you eat from these fruits? And, and, and he's playing on her desires playing on um, kind of her, uh, her emotions as she looks around and sees that, yeah, there's loads of fruit trees, but there's the, the most delicious ones off limits. Why is that? And starts to get the ball spinning on her, thinking, why is God keeping that from me? Why am I not allowed to fulfill that desire? Why am I not allowed to pursue that? And like I said, desires kind of need guardrails, right? You know, we can a very silly kind of illustration, but you know, some people have a desire to, to fly, and so they jump out of airplanes, but they still need parachutes. That's a restriction on their freedom of flight, is a parachute. It's a guardrail. It's to keep us safe, and, and, and that's essentially what's going on here. God knows us, and he's put some kind of guardrails up on our desires and says, let me explain to you how this is going to kill you. I have to do that with Harry all the time. Let me explain why that's a bad idea. But I want to. It's really not a good idea. You know, that's, that's the conversation that's going on here. But our enemy is saying, oh, this doesn't look that bad. No one will know. It'll be fine. You'll be fine. Just go for it. Hey, why doesn't he want you to do that anyway? He's such a killjoy. He's such a killjoy, that God. Whoa. He really doesn't want you to enjoy yourself. He's holding something back from you. That's what's going on. It's still going on today. The other thing that he does is he appeals to their pride. And I talked a little bit about this last week, but just to emphasize again that the, the invitation is to be like God. You can be like God. You can make the decision. You're in charge. And that's, again, the, the, uh, the appeal to Adam and Eve. And um, why I think that's really relevant, as I was thinking about... Um, as I was thinking about uh, who the snake is, is because the snake is a picture that, that comes uh, time and time again through Scripture. It's, it, it's a reoccurring image or snake-like imagery. Just one example is uh, Goliath, the giant. Goliath, the giant, is described as wearing snake-like scaly armor. And the word bronze is used lots and lots, which, if you know your ancient Hebrew, is the same word for snake. He's a scaly snake, is Goliath. He's a snaily, snaily, a scaly snake who's coming against the purposes of God, purpose and plans of God. The Israelites are to go into the land that has been promised for them, and the Philistines come and they're like, "We're going to fight you. We're going to kill you. We're going to put you to death. You, you can't be here." And they send forth this giant Goliath to, to be the champion, this scaly, snake-like warrior. 
And, uh, and we know the story of how King David, not king yet, he's just a shepherd boy, comes and uses the sling and, and uh, knocks him down and cuts off his head. It's a, a reoccurring pattern and image through scripture of a snake-like entity coming against with uh, the, the people of God, either brutally by force as in that story, or more often or not, by playing on our desires and appealing to our pride. And it's the same story that happens to Jesus in the temptation. Uh, it's a really fascinating link. If you actually look at the conversation that the snake has with Eve and then the conversation that the, the devil has with Jesus, the temptation, again, he, he's appealing to Jesus' desires. You're hungry, so why don't you turn this bread in, this, these stones into bread? You, surely you want notoriety and fame. Look at this kingdom that I have. I'll give it to you, Jesus, if you just bow down and worship me. It's appealing to his desires, both simple ones for food and shelter, but also those complicated ones, desires to be seen, desires to be liked, desires to be, um, you know, for fame, power, sex, and money. And then finally, uh, the devil uh, appeals to his pride because there's this fascinating exchange where we read it and it sounds different because he says, he brings him up to the top of the temple and he says, cash yourself off and you won't get hurt. Um, but actually, what the Jews were expecting in that time was that the Messiah would come from the skies to the temple and then to the ground. They were expecting the Messiah to come that way. And the devil knew it and Jesus knew it, that if Jesus were to do what the devil was saying, he'd be exposing himself as the Messiah. He'd be showing who he was. And what the devil is saying is, why don't you, look, they don't know who you are. They don't know your power. They don't know your mission. They, they're ignoring you. Don't you, wanna, don't you want them to know who you really are? Don't you want them to understand you and worship you, Jesus? He's appealing to his pride. It's the same tactics from the garden, again, used to Jesus. And we know that Jesus says no. We know that he um, isn't tempted. We know that he throws scripture back into the enemy's face. So let's look at the Savior the Savior? How is he in our scriptures? How is he in Genesis 1 to 3? Well, there's loads of instances, and I just like, we're going to just lean down on one, uh, but I wanted to share them. I might have touched on some of them already, but uh, John's gospel um, reveals to us that um, this fascinating interplay, because at the beginning of, the, of Genesis, it says, in the beginning was God, and then God makes the world through a process of speaking out his words. He said, and he said, and he said. And as John writes his gospel, he starts it off kind of retelling the story of Genesis and says, in the beginning was the word. And what we see there is that God the Father in creation, with the spirit there hovering over the waters, is speaking the creation into existence, i.e. through the words. His very words are the word, in other words. So I think, that's, I think it's beautiful. I think it's amazing. Um, it's obviously just the beginning and origin of this theme. The next place we see is as God says, let's create mankind in our image. We have a plurality. And of course, the, the doctrine of the Trinity isn't like, the word isn't written in, in the Bible, um, but it starts here. We start to see this theme running through that there's something about God where he's one, and yet he's expressing himself in these three persons. He's one, but yet three, and, and we're trying to grapple that, and the way that kind of clever brains have thought over the years is to call it this word, the Trinity. Um, but... 
Uh, and then, again, there's this other example of where Adam and Eve do fall and they're, they're, they realize they're naked and their shame is, kind of causes them to hide away. And God's instinct, his first thing to do is to, to make some clothes out of skins. And so here we see, inevitably, a, a sacrifice, a first sacrifice, as it were, to cover up the shame. I think these are small little seeds, little breadcrumbs of a theme that builds and builds and builds until fulfilled in Jesus. But there is a really strong um, gospel shout right here in the verses that we're reading. Because uh, when all of this happens, the snake speaking to Eve and tempting her, and she gives the apple to Adam, and then they hide in the garden. And then God comes and he says, what's happened? What have you done? Oh, my goodness. Like, what's, what's, what's gone on here? And, uh, and then when they, they un, un uh, reveal the story and unveil what's happened, the first thing God does is to speak amazingly to the snake and proclaim a promise to him. And it's a promise to us. And we'll read it in uh, Genesis verse 14, chapter 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, that's to say... Eating dust, remember Adam and Eve came from the dust, and we'll go back to dust. Dust is a death metaphor in scripture. Dust means he's going to live in, the, he's gonna live in death. He's going to taste death. He's going to live in, it's, that's his domain. That's his kingdom now. He's a kingdom of death. That's where he's going to be all the days of his life. He's going to be in and around death. And I will put enmity, that's um, an open hostility uh, an active opposition. We're at war. It's war. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, your translations, it might say, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. And so those words are the same. But what's different is the location. And um, again, it's like if you you have a foot injury, it's, it's pretty annoying, um, but it's not quite the same as a head injury. So the implication there is, 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 you know, you can recover from a foot injury, but he's not going to recover from having his head crushed in. That's, that's what's going on with the way that is. And so in other words, what God promises here, right here in this, in this um, kind of curse, as it were, on the snake, is someone is going to come. There's going to be a seed. There's going to be a descendant from this woman that you, you've turned and you, you've brought death and sin and chaos into this world through this couple, through this first family. But there's a hope because from them, someone is going to come and he's going to be your end. He's going to be your downfall. And it sets off this like uh, this search in scripture as the storyline progresses of, is this the snake crusher? Is this him? And you see glimpses. You know, you saw one in David. He came and chopped off the snake's head in Goliath. You think, is this, the, is this him? Is this the snake crusher? And yet he blows it. But it's going to be one like him. You see it in Abraham, but he messes up. And then in, in all of these people, there's this, there's this, is it him? Is it him? Is this him? Is this our time? Is it coming now? And it goes all the way through scripture. Uh, and there's the, the, the picture of who this savior is going to be, the picture of what he's going to do and how he's going to behave starts to kind of form as scripture progresses, as the storyline continues until we reach Jesus and we meet the savior or the snake crusher. 
got a snake pressure. And, uh, and sorry, I've got this design here. So another snake. Sorry, I should have given a warning. But um, yeah, this is a new tattoo design if anyone wants it. Um, but there is a reality here, and I want to I wanna land uh, us on, on this reality because um, we, what we see is in the story of Jesus, as he, as he denies uh, the devil in, in, the, in the wilderness, you know, he's in the desert place, the dusty place, in the place of death, the domain of the devil, he's there being tempted and he denies, he says no, and he says, no, I'm going to trust in God. No, I'm going to put God first. No, I'm going to live the way God's told me to live. No, I'm going to follow his plan for my life and I'm not going to listen to your lies. I'm not going to listen as you play all my desires. I'm not going to listen as you tempt me this way and that way. I'm going to trust in God. And yet, uh, there's one final test for Jesus as he's in the garden, another garden, the garden of Gethsemane, and before him is a reality that he's very aware of, his death on the cross. And you can, you can hear, again, the, the adversary, the snake, saying, is this really what God wants for you? Is this really it? Is this really what it means to go forward? And where that worked for Adam and Eve in their garden, and they ate from the fruit, they listened to the snake, they followed their desires, they followed their heart, they turned their back on God, and they ate from the fruit. And so, oh, a preacher, Andrew Wilson, he says, they ate from the fruit, crunch. Where Jesus in his garden, and he says, not my will, but yours, O Lord. Crunch on the snake's head. That's the reality we live in. He's mortally wounded. But there is a tension, because in, all, in Christian faith, there's a tension between now and the reality we live in, and a hope and a future for, a, for an end reality. And it, it it could be illustrated like this. We're gone. I've lost it. There we go. This will do. We'll finish there with that slide. I don't, I don't have any more. Okay. Um, there's an, there's a, there was an age where, where, where the enemy, the snake, had just full reign and full influence. But it's over. Jesus has done the final blow. Jesus has... Um, Jesus has basically, the illustration that people use, I don't know if it's a super English illustration, but it's the difference between D-Day and V-E Day. And if you know your history, there's World War II. D-Day was this decisive victory, but the war wasn't over. But everyone knew, they look back, historians look back at D-Day as, as, as the turning point. From that point on, it was inevitable. The war was, it was coming to an end. Peace was coming. It wasn't over, but it was inevitable. It was surely going to come. There's D-Day and then V-E Day, victory in Europe, when peace was declared in Europe. And so we live now in this tension between D-Day and V-E Day. We're still fighting. He's still whispering his lies. It's like, it's like an abusive ex-relationship. We're free of that relationship, but they're still able to come along and say the old lies, the old temptations, the old things, and it can be really tempting to listen. But we've got, we've got a new, we're married now to a new lover who loves us and cares for us. That's who we are as Christians in Christ. We have a God who cares for us and loves us, has adopted into his family, and has, and has broken us off from that relationship. And so, yes, we still have his voice coming in at times, but we can listen to a new voice and we can choose actively to do so. Jesus has dealt decisively with that ancient serpent on the cross. 
And today we can declare to sin, death, and the devil that the battle is won, the victory is complete, and that as sure as the sun will rise in the morning, that snake crusher will return one day to finish the job, that it will all be wrapped up when he comes again. That's our hope as believers. So uh, if I can invite the band up. We're going to sing a few songs now, and we're going to sing of of the promise, of the hope, the victory that that Jesus has won for us, I think. Uh, And uh, and as we do so, um, we're going to kind of pause halfway through, and we're going to take communion, uh, which is kind of out there and there. Uh, and and I'll, I'll lead us through that process, but we're going to stand and, and sing. Can, can I ask you to stand? And I'm going to pray for us. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, that you have dealt with our ancient adversary, our enemy of old, the snake, who has been whispering into the ears of humanity for generations. Lord, I thank you that in you we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Lord, I thank you that in you, we have a new heart. Lord, in you, we have a spirit that enables us and empowers us to live for you. And Lord, we will mess up when we do on a daily basis, fail to to hit the mark as it were. But Lord God, it doesn't matter because you have succeeded where we never will. Lord, you have been the image. Jesus is the image of God perfectly for us on our behalf. And we stand here today because of the blood of Jesus and the body broken. We stand clothed in your righteousness. And Lord, right now we reject the lies of the enemy. Lord, we reject uh, the shame, guilt, discouragement from yesterday. And we push on, Lord, into the future. Lord, where we know Lord, you one day will come and defeat once and for all that enemy who now is wounded irreparably. He's got his death sentence. He knows the end is coming. 